When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. My name is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams. I'm sure you've been reading me, and if you haven't, you should. I'm in the New York Post. I've been in it for every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, four days a week since the Stone Age. I am now also on WABC Radio, and you can get me, and if you haven't, you better tell friends, and you should get me, because there are times I'm almost semi-charming. While I'm telling you how semi-charming I am, I want to tell you about something else. There was just a screening here in New York of Bleecker Street's That's the name of the organization that produced the movie. The movie is called Mafia Mama. The invitee's wardrobe rated four oys. Skirts were so tight that the wearers were set for a colonoscopy. Squeezing it all in was enough for a mammogram. I'm telling you, this was El Crapola. Forget Paris collections, unless it's Paris... There's a town in Arkansas with the name Paris. This is not the same kind of Paris clothes. One wore a blue floor-length marabou with a long back zipper. The long back zipper had an open broken hook. I know because I stood behind her. Another was in a short, short green rayon. Rayon is always so lovely for an evening gown. A green rayon that was so tight a lima bean is fatter. Another had a snug, snug, snug dress which featured a slit higher than the designer's IQ. Then there was a pink one which barely covered what the wearer was born with that was pink. Spanks were outlined through fake feathers. Even the bras probably had sequins. This was some cockamamie group that was for the Mafia Mama. They were all the housewife types. Looking gorgeous was the star and producer, Tony Collette. She was formerly on Desperate Housewives. She wore a magnificent white flowered and embroidered floor-length Valentino, but that was because she didn't pay for it. They loaned it to her. So why did she produce this dreadful, awful cockamamie movie? She said, I'm a curious person. I wanted to learn, and I learned by trusting. I don't know who the hell she was trusting. Certainly it wasn't professionals. She says, this has already been sold to all over the world. Well, the world, as we know, is shrinking. She says, we were able to get our financing, and I have loved every single minute of doing this. The pleasure has not ended yet. For me, this was a beacon of light. I have never seen such crapola clothes. The best part, she said, she said, was, this is Tony Collette speaking, the best part was that we did this in Rome. What could be more exciting than to be working in Rome? Yeah, okay. Her Valentino loner got stepped on, and it diverted her attention to some hard-hitting, tough reporter from the always famous Nocturnal. That is supposed to be some sort of a periodical. I don't know what it is. I thought it was a fruit of some sort. Nocturnal. Everyone there posed for photos. I'm letting you know, in case this whatever it is comes to your local town, don't rush to see it. This group kept smiling toward cameramen who were still in New Jersey. And this was in New York, where we were watching it. Even the beating on their schmatas was at attention. It was housewives from consignment shops. Spike heels, right foot extended, boobs way out, rears squeezed, hands on hips, 
long, 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 long hair down to short, 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 short hair. Invitees loved the movie. It was their mirror. I'm just letting you know. Okay. On to other things. Are eggs expensive now? Milk is costlier than shoes. Rent is so high that buying the building's cheaper. Try going to see somebody like Springsteen at the garden. There was confusing MSG signage. It did not indicate where or you go for a ticket scanning entrance machine. Also, this person's particular machine to which he was sent didn't work. There was no human to assist. There was scaffolding everywhere. Then, where do you sit? Madison Square Garden is really large. No usher could be found. The ticket master was $800 for bad seats. Also, everyone in the surround kept talking. You couldn't enjoy the big stars singing or the big mouths talking. So I'm just letting you know, if you're coming to New York, don't knock yourself out to go to some of these places. There was so much technology that maybe it should be less on keeping enemies out and more on welcoming fans. I'm going on. I'm going on. You can't get rid of me. I'm on for an hour. Nothing today is like it was. Somebody went to a Staples on West 80th Street in New York. The guy was buying a printer. The salesperson said, Yeah, okay, how old is your old one? The customer said, It's ten years old. The salesperson said, Forget it. This one won't even last that long. How about that? Chicago. It is selected for our Democratic National Convention and possible Biden resuscitation. Chicago? the only place where a kid can play cops and robbers by himself. Okay, I am now on to several other things because I am in the mood to talk and there's nothing you can do because I'm here for an hour. New York. New York has LaGuardia Airport. Sunday morning off a plane. This Sunday came fashion plate Tracy Morgan. He wore Gucci black and white sweatsuits. He wore a Louis Vuitton cap and sneakers. He was being pushed in a red wheelchair. He had a boombox on his lap. Paris Hilton couldn't have looked dressier. This was his traveling ensemble. Okay. Listen, we lost Jerry Springer this week. I remember when his first show business shot was being a ball boy in Forest Hills' 1962 Tennis Open. The last thing he told me, not so long before he left us, the last thing he told me was his plan for a coming Father's Day special. Yeah, what is it, I said. He said, what I want to have is six hookers and a drag queen singing, I Gotta Be Me. Now we are going on. We are going on for me to tell you some many other things. But you have to hold on while I find my, my, my notes. I can't find my notes. I said some wonderful things that I was going to tell you. Oh, yeah. Laurie Metcalf and I met somewhere in Manhattan to discuss her new film, Somewhere in Queens. What do you play, I said. She said, I play Ray Romano's wife, Angela. It's a takeoff on his own real life. He created this movie. So, she said, said Laurie Metcalf, humor solves a lot. We filmed in his Queen's hometown. I am from southern Illinois, which helps with different accents, like there's his very overprotective mother. Our lives were relatable, but people are complicated. To learn from the cast, I had to study everyone around me. Yeah, which means what, I asked. She says, they maybe all don't know me, but everyone around 
new Ray Romano. Like with extras brought in to populate the sidewalk, everybody knew Ray Romano. It was fun to watch their expressions. In one party scene, she said, I was supposed to give him a slice of cake. We had to reshoot the scene several times because he moved. Once I got the cake in his ear, some even fell out of that ear. We shot this two years ago. I stayed in Brooklyn. We were still dealing with COVID, testing, masking up. This is Ray Romano's triple threat. He wrote stars and is directing it. It was great being directed by him. He's in tune with us. It's a path he's envisioned. Not difficult to feed his actors the right information. At the same time, you should know that this Laurie Metcalf is working with director Joe Mantello on the soon-to-open Broadway play Grey House. It opens May 30th. She does everything. She does movies. She does stage. She does everything, and she is going to be in a terrific play, and you're going to all go there to watch it. Meantime, what's happening in New York? Cynthia Nixon. She showed for Supreme Court duty, jury duty, in sweatpants and a mask. She was not picked. I'm certain it had nothing to do with her outfit. Chelsea Clinton was at a downtown coffee shop called Seven Grains. Spider-Man's Toby Maguire, with his baseball cap and lady friend, was at a place called Barbudo Saturday Night. He ate cake, a giant slice. And at Douay on the weekend was Katie Couric and a gent. She inhaled salad. At Canaletto, there was gossip. Lynn Cheney and Senator Joe Manchin had babbled about creating a third political party. They weren't there, but the speech about them was there. Anything to disgorge the current squatter, his consigliere brother, and that Jesse James' son, Hunter. I now have to go into a station break. After I come back from the station break, I will babble on, and I will give you a great interview with a wedding planner. Oh, the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. So, Michelle Rago is a very high-class lady. I mean, she's a wedding planner who does superiorly high-end weddings. Do you are there more destination weddings than than in the old days? There certainly are. Uh, in the beginning, uh, which was about thirty years ago for me, uh, I would say destination was probably a third of my business, and now it's predominantly all of my business. And and even if they're in the states. It is, you know, modeled after a destination wedding, and people may be from out of the country or certainly not New York. So destination is the approach people seem to be gravitating towards. But why? If they are ma- if they live in New York, say, for instance, why would they want to schlep to someplace like Minnesota or something? Who, who cares about places like that? Why would they want to do that? Well, I think I mostly work on, I would say, in L.A., Sonoma, uh, Napa, you know, here in the Northeast, I have, I mean, I have a, a, a big group of clients who, you know, live in the Midwest, but, you know, I, I think if people own land and they have the ability to build a tent and entertain everyone, or, you know, oh, if they okay. can rent a big, you know, I think it just gives them a lot of flexibility and freedom. And then everybody loves to hop in a plane and go to the Caribbean or Europe, you know, Mexico, Oi, excuse me. In other words, poor people should stay home and eat pretzels. Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's by hook or by crook. You would be uh, you'd be shocked at what people go through to do it. It's they're compelled. I mean, I just you know, it has not gone away. And it used to be maybe sixty people, forty people. Now it's two hundred and fifty people, three hundred and fifty people getting on a plane to go to another country. So, are the same people remarrying? Uh, well, I, are you asking, like, am I marrying the same client to someone else? Yeah. 
I haven't. I honestly have never done that. Oh, poor baby. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> poor baby. I know, not yet. But you've gotten the biggest names. You did a Brooklyn Beckham wedding. I mean, are you allowed to tell me a little something about that now? Unfortunately, I am under a strict NDA, and I can tell you that I did Nicola Pelt and Brooklyn Beckham's wedding. I was brought in, you know, I was brought in four weeks before, oh. so it was fast and furious for me, which, you know, sometimes being the last team in is, is great because, you know, it's just what there is to do in front of you. And we had a great experience. They're a lovely, you know, both families, really lovely. I had a great relationship with Brooklyn and Nicola, and uh, so it was it was a good experience for me. Michelle, what often, what often gets screwed up? Um, I think, you know, we get hired often, um, you know, at, at the last minute. And I think when people interview, they don't necessarily understand maybe the value or the power of a really seasoned destination team. So, I, you know, sometimes people get into relationships with planners who haven't worked a lot internationally or maybe they don't do, you know, big production. So I think that's, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, is a huge value if you were to if you were to take us on as your planning team. And then, you know, things like, you know, guest lists get messed up and, you know, maybe you've never worked with a vendor and you think they're going to do a good job and they're just not cut out for it. So, you know, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. Are mothers-in-law pains in the ass or behind, or what is the proper word, which I don't care about? Are mothers-in-law yeah. pains? They don't win the trophy for it. There is someone, <laughs> that trophy gets exchanged on every project. There's always someone, and every time I get hired, they say, well, my family, you know, and I'm like, your family's the same as everybody else's family. There's always, you know, there's always a character. And, it, you know, it could be, you know, a mother-in-law, it could be a groom, it could be your, you know, Aunt Mary. Well, th but there always is something. Okay. Always. I, I, what it's about this? It's an anthropological this? study of humanity, this job. There is always something. And you just, you have to know that you've got to, you know, be ready to anticipate anything. What is the most extravagant request they have, a bride or groom? What, what do they want? They want an elephant to bring in the ring. What do they want? Yeah, they people are, they get very excited as you get close to it. And they think, you know, some people are into more is more. You know, I want to fly a band in from the States. I want to get a headliner. I, you know, let's make the stage, push a button and make the stage turn. Yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. people just get really enthusiastic. And look, you know, that's what we're there for. We're there to help you realize what it is, you know, you've waited your whole life. I, you know, it's funny. People get, you know, have a lot to say about, you know, what they perceive as extravagance. But if you've worked hard and, you know, you have the ability to do it and it's your only child or whatever, uh, you know, I say go for it. <laughs> no apologies necessary. Well, what's the most extravagant request? I mean, really, I'm I've been to a few weddings. So many people are pains in the behind. What do they ask for? Um, I think probably my most extravagant was a couple who wanted to, you know, sort of on the fly in that day, you know, get helicopters to take all the guests to an island and... <laughs> You know, you know that you wake up. You're like it's like a scavenger hunt, Cindy. You wake up and you think to yourself, uh, "All right, you okay? Let's see what's possible here." I had somebody who asked me. They're, they're sitting by the pool and they're all partying and having a good time. And I guess there were a lot of pranks going on. And you know, somebody wanted me to find a signed copy of a Barat, you know, poster. You know, some you know, actor. You know, it's like stuff like that. It's a scavenger hunt. So. We have a team, usually when I have, you know, weddings that I know we're going to be with a lot of demand. We just, you know, bring a little concierge team with us, and, and they just sit there and help me figure out how to find things. Did anything ever, anything get screwed up? I mean, did did anything ever really get lost up? Oh, I mean, it is without a doubt. You you could have, <laughs> you know, you're, you know, you spent all the money, you've done all the logistics, you've paid for customs and taxes, and, you know, they'll confiscate your orchids and burn them. You're just like, that was really <laughs> visual. And that, those <laughs> are my orchids. 
Yeah, okay. you know what I mean? You're just like, holy moly. You can't, I know, I know you can't speak, but is there any famous people you can tell us about at all? Oh, sure. Well, oh, speak. sure. I oh. did, uh, I just recently, let me, for, for me, Sam, I just did the wedding for um, Sean McVeigh and his beautiful bride, Veronica, and he's the coach of Los Angeles Rams. We just did that. It was a really fun wedding. Super, super. They had hired me three years ago. You know, before COVID and, you know, we were together through all of that. And then in the end, the wedding ended up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. And, and in the meantime, he won the Super Bowl. So that was a pretty good party, I would say, overall. Why did you become a wedding planner instead of somebody who sells apples? Why? Why wedding planner? You know, I want to tell you, it, it, there's no trajectory that I except to say that my grandmother forced me to wait on her hand and foot and and i considered that to be love which i love doing it and i've only ever worked in hospitality you know i thought i was going to open a restaurant until i worked in a kitchen in the 80s and i thought well that's never going to happen because that's crazy and you know i started working in hotels and you know, it's i don't know you paint the hallway you've got to paint the house i just kept wanting to have more and more control and i started i had a flower business and next thing you know i was producing and and I love it. I absolutely love what I do. I can't imagine doing anything else. Okay, so how do you prepare for lousy weather? If it's a nice outdoor thing and it storms and it rains and it snows, what do you do? Besides you have yourself? to have, oh, you got to have all the tenting in hand and space. I mean, you have to plan for, plan. you know, plan A is not really plan A. It's usually plan B or plan C is plan A. So, you know, you have to have all the firepower in your pocket and you've got to, you know, you go on site inspections and you, you know, you have to relate to the client. You know, if things don't go our way, this is our plan and this is how we're going to pivot. How does everyone find you? Where are you? I, a lot of people, I'm by referral for a lot of clients, but, you know, this Instagram, I mean, it is free and your best friend because, you know, everybody pokes around on Instagram and we find a lot of our clients that way. Bride or groom, who pays? Um, oh, it's really, it, I, I would have answered this very differently a long time ago. It, I get a lot of couples who pay because, you know, we'll get clients maybe who are a, a bit more established. But, you know, it's it's still parents. You know, I would say 50-50. And, I, and, and I, again, bride family, I have a couple clients right now where it's the bride family is, is paying for the wedding. But, you just never know. Can a guest, just a plain guest at a wedding, wear black? Of course. Because I was once told you shouldn't wear black at a wedding. It doesn't show a good sign. I don't know. That's what somebody wants Oh, no. Told no, 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 no. Of course you can wear black. Yeah. There's, I don't know if you should, if you're a woman, if you should be wearing, you know, an all-white gown. I still think that can be a little tricky when the bride is there. But... I th and color is really becoming more popular, which I'm excited, by the way, for bridal dresses. It's very So give me, a, give me an experience. Give me one story so I can know about what it's like when a wedding goes poop. Oh, um, all right. So specifically, you want to know when things don't go well. Well, I know when uh, they go well. I have to know when they don't go well. Yeah. I mean, look, mine are all logistical things where... You know, you've planned, you know, somebody was supposed to get you the alcohol. It doesn't happen. Next thing you know, you're chartering a private plane and you're bringing alcohol in and, you know, clearing customs. I mean, it's my stuff is always the goods aren't coming um, and we are moving heaven and earth to get our goods where they need to be. Um, I had an event once where the lighting company was supposed to hang, I don't know, 30,000 candles from the ceiling and they were overbooked and they never ever hung uh, maybe half the candles they hung on the ceiling and the groom's father decided that he was going to take that opportunity this is early in my career get up on the stage I mean people have tried but I have a pretty good contract and a nice attorney I have not really had a terrible situation no I've, I've tried to quit a job 
And the father said, my, bro- my daughter will kill me if you quit. <laughs> I said, well, we're going to have to get in a better place than we are right now because I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> what about yeah. buffet-style weddings? I mean, the buffets are usually so crappy, and the food has been left over from the last divorce. What about buffet-style weddings? They're lousy. I'm not, they're lousy. We don't do a lot of buffets. Now, for cocktails, you know, we'll do, you know, Stations, perhaps seafood stations and things like that for coffee, but mostly for dinners we do a combination of family style and/or plated. Yeah, the buffet is tricky. I agree with you. Never and, looks good in the end. And stoned, inebriated, El Drunco, you get that too. Oh, Cindy, yes, that is. Um, a people will make a lot of foolish decisions about, you know, perhaps you've had a little surgery before you came and, you know, you've gone on medication or, you know, Uh you think you can sit in the sun for 10 hours and drink and, you know, it's people definitely find themselves in a lot of um, compromising positions. Tell me about celebrities versus rich people. I think which are which are tougher. And I know you're going to tell me, "Oh, my people are wonderful." I understand that. I'm going to overlook your answer, but tell me who's lousier sometimes: celebrities or just rich people? I mean, it's interesting that you ask that question because I don't do a ton of celebrities. I tend to work with you know just if you call them that, just more established you know families and not celebrity personalities. So early on, I'd done a few, and I sort of felt that wasn't the best fit for me. And as I've gotten on in my career, I'm able, you know, I, I you know, I sort of pick and choose what's a good fit personality-wise, you know? Cause you, uh, so I would say, you know, I've sort of made my path a long time ago just to not work, not have someone's celebrity be the reason I was taking a job. Are you married? I am divorced. <laughs> I am. Yes, I am divorced. Who no did kids. your wedding? Who did your yeah, wedding? I did my wedding. And I, 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 a year and a half, I drove everyone insane. And, um, you know, immediately, I don't know. And, uh, and there you have it. But no. I have no get, plans. Do you, do you get invited to their anniversaries? Oh, yeah, I do. I I tend to be very lucky. I know this is the answer you don't want to hear, but I tend to stay in a relationship for a very long time with my clients. Good relationships. And, uh, yeah. And, in fact, he would love that I would say this. I have a client whose wedding I did, I don't know how many years ago now, six years ago. And uh, he sent me a text and said, hey, I put you in my will. And I was like, okay, first of all, you must be drinking wine. What are you talking about? And he said, not what you think. He said, I put you in the will in case my husband and I don't make it because they're about to have kids. You're going to plan our funeral. And I said, well, how much did you give me? And he said, I've put enough in there that it's going to be a beautiful party, but you can't come after me then for more money. Cause I'll be dead. That was so charming of you to ask how much you were going to get for when you're talking about yeah, somebody's like, well, how I much mean, you it was so me. loving. I your wedding. I know you. How much do I get? <laughs> Yeah. What's the, per- really... what's the percentage of stick togethers? Um, oh, I would say in my world about I think sixty percent stick together. Okay, are you gonna get married again? I mean, why not? It's gonna you know, we'll see if somebody, you know, um I don't know, Sandy, that's a good question. If I do, my entire it will be you'll feel like a little wobble in the universe and um <laughs> everyone who knows me will say wow <laughs> so if you wow and get married are you going to yeah. do your own fakakta wedding no i would torture one of my peers and dear friends to do it so that i could be a guest that lesson i've learned you never want to plan your own nuptials that is not fun Okay, Michelle, I have enjoyed talking to you. You haven't necessarily told me one thing that's lousy, which I would love to hear about somebody. You don't have to mention mm. their name. Give me an experience. Something lousy. Nothing went uh-huh. wrong in anything oh. you've ever done? Uh, you want something more than my candle mission. Um, yeah, well, yeah, that's nice, but I'll take another thing before I hang up. Uh, let's see. What well, is a good went wrong? 
Well, if you, if you can't think of any, I will now thank you for coming on. You're not going to do my next wedding. Forget it. But I have, I have enjoyed talking to you. Um, me too. It's a pleasure. I followed you for years, and it was lovely to be called. It's nice to hear your voice. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks, honey. Have a great day. Bye. Okay, bye. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I'm about to speak to my longtime friend, Jeanette Walls. I knew her as a fellow Scribner. She was a New York journalist along with me and gave it up 15 years ago to write the best, best seller memoir, The Glass Castle. It was on the bestseller list for over a year. It was in 35 languages. It made a movie. My God, I mean, you made so much money. Can you now tell me about this new book that you've just done, Hang the Moon? Tell me about it. Well, Cindy, it's fictional, and it's my first real fiction book. I've written a couple of other books that were labeled fiction, but, you know, you and I being journalists, we cling to the truth and facts, and this time I went way out, and it's all made up, except that it's kind of based on true historical characters. It's based 100 years ago during Prohibition. It's about a tough girl during rough times, uh, uh, Sally Kincaid, and she, it's during Prohibition, and she becomes a rum runner. Okay, I understand it's fiction. I know it's from Scribner's. I know it's. I know what you've done, basically. But how did you get the gizzard to write this when it's not a world in which you have lived? Well, um, you know, my father uh, was a moonshine runner. And my grandmother was as well, so it's kind of in my blood. Um, I also, I became fascinated with Prohibition when I was a little girl because I learned about this long ago time when it was illegal to drink liquor. My dad was a raging alcoholic, and I told my mom, I wanted to live during Prohibition. And she said, oh, no, you didn't. It was a disaster. (laughs) It was a complete debacle. People actually drank more during Prohibition than they did during it. Crime went up. The only thing Prohibition did is it made the price of booze more expensive and the quality uh, go down. So it was it was a fascinating thing to go back and look at this time a hundred years ago and see how sometimes you know we, uh, these well intended people who genuinely thought that prohibition was going to stop uh, drinking and consequently stop crime, and it had exactly the opposite reaction. Okay, how do you get the history? behind this first of all did you have a personal memory anywhere of some of it um well certainly not firsthand of prohibition but you know there are still a lot of places that are are dry but i am a research nerd i completely love going into the books and finding this stuff out and i read court transcripts I live in Virginia now, and one of the neighboring counties was known as the wettest county in the world. They made more moonshine than any other place in the world. And um, they also had the longest trial in Virginia's history um, because not only was a lot of moonshine made, but it was being made and distributed by the local law. Because there wasn't enough um, lawmen to enforce, there wasn't enough federal and state law people to enforce prohibition. So it was largely based on county to county. And in Franklin County, the, the lawmen were involved with it directly. So a lot of Hang the Moon is based on that um, that county. Okay. A long time ago, uh, I was asked to write a book, a, a fictional book, and I tried it. And they said I had said I had to write all the characters. I had to write a first chapter, and I had to give them an index. Well, I did all that, and they looked at it, and they said, you can't write so that's that. That's the two different things: being what we do and what you are now doing. So, how long did it take to do this book, Cindy? It is. 
so different. It is so different. And I had no idea how different it was. And I kept on clinging to the truth and the facts and things that happened. And my editor had to pry my my bony little fingers off the facts and say, no, you've got to make it up. Now, I come from a family of liars and fibbers and people who had a casual relationship to the truth. And I think that's one of the reasons that I went into journalism is trying to stick to the facts, stick to the truth. And it was quite the leap for me. And that's why it took seven or eight years for me to write this thing, to, to understand that fictionalizing things and being a liar are different things. It, it, it kind of felt the same. It was like, you know, but, but I, I can't just make it up. And my editor said, that's what fiction is, Jeanette. But that being said, I did keep on turning to real-life characters. Like there was a woman in Virginia, in this Franklin County, who she was known as the best pilot, the best um, driver of moonshine um, runs of any human being, man or woman, in the county and the surrounding counties. Her name was Willie Carter Sharp, and um, she got shot at all the time, but she was just fierce. So a lot of the main character, Sally Kincaid, is based on her. Give me just a history, quickly, of what, how does it go? How does the book go? What is the trajectory of the book <laughs> you know cindy i had to read the other day a paragraph from it and i couldn't find a paragraph that didn't give away the plot so I, <laughs> what do you care what it gives away we're going to make you people buy the book and read it tell me a little bit i don't I'll even know the story bit. okay sally kincaid was born into a very wealthy family and then she got booted from the family um because of a scandal and she came back when she was 17 and she idealized this family. She, her father was the most important person in this county. And when she comes back, she has to kind of come to terms with some of the things that she believed in that aren't necessarily true. And, you know, she bought into the myth of that the Kincaids are better than everybody else. And that helped her get it through some tough times. But it, there was also a downside to that. She didn't realize about the suffering going on. She... One of the things about Sally is that she's underestimated because she's a woman during those times. And maybe because she was underestimated or maybe because she went up and lived in the mountains and had to tough things out. She, um, she is a real can-do kind of gal. She just doesn't let things scare her. She just does what needs to be done. And she progresses very far in the, uh, the business of moonshine, which is not only a men's world, but it's an illegal world. So how long did it take to knock this off? Because the last one you wrote was the biggest bestseller since the Bible. So how long did it take you to knock this one off? I spent about seven or eight years on this thing, depending on when you want to start it. I, I really immersed myself in the, um, in the research. And among the things I had to research is, for example, a lot of curse words that we use now uh, weren't around back in Sally's day. And I realized that my curse words that I all use um, are from my father. It's like, gosh, I hope I can say a curse word on your on your show. It's not that bad, but dumbass. It's my favorite. It's my go-to curse word. And it, it wasn't around in Sally's day. So I just, I tried very, very hard to make sure that it was realistic and believable. Because I think that with fiction, you, you bring the reader into this world. And if something starts happening and it's like, oh, this would have never happened back then, then you lose the reader. So that's one of the things that took me as long as it did. Oh, dumbass is a word we all use. In fact, I use it for the people I'm working with. Don't worry about it. So tell me now. First, now let's get back to your lifestyle. You used to live amongst us. You were a New Yorker. What the hell is it like to live in downtown Virginia? <laughs> tell me. I was a, yeah, I was a Park Avenue gal. I oh, sorry. Oh, tell me what it was like. <laughs> I was. I thought I would never leave New York. I went out in my power suits and my great big old hair and my great big old earrings, and I just loved it. And it was my husband wanted to live in Virginia. And I thought, why would I live anywhere other than New York? It's the greatest city in the world. Um, but his dad lived in Washington, D.C., and he wanted to be kind of close to his father in his golden years. So he dragged me down there kicking and screaming. And the truth is, I kind of love it. My inner my inner hillbilly is out. And, um, you know, I got I got four horses. I got 10 chickens. I, you know, I got a great big old farm. So I'm I'm very, very happy. And I tell myself, Oh, why did I ever live in New York? And then I come back and I fall in love all over again. Yeah, well, it's a real mazel tov to live amongst all the animals. I understand that. I got one in my house 
that's a little five-pound five Yorkie, and it's enough. But don't you ever want to come back to a real city instead of living in the bluegrass, <laughs> wherever the hell it is? Don't you want to come back to us? Well, I come back from time to time. But, Cindy, the truth is, when I'm in New York, I feel like, I feel like I'm visiting an old boyfriend with whom I split amicably. Oh. I will always love New York. It's always in my heart. But boy, am I glad I moved on. You know, you were born here. I wasn't. I was born out in the boondocks, and I put on the shiny suits and the shiny earrings for a long time. But I always felt like I had a green card there. I always felt like I was a visitor. Well, who are your friends? Who the hell do you go to dinner with? Uh, 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 what, a chicken layer? Who do you go? Who are your friends? I, one of my very best friends is a construction worker. Another oh, God. one is somebody. Oh, my God. Another one, <laughs> another one is the deputy sheriff. Um, I also have a billionaire friend down there. But I got to tell you, it makes for good fiction. It makes for good fiction knowing these people out who struggle in a way that that New Yorkers don't. I mean, New Yorkers worry about things that people in the hinterland don't and vice versa. So, you know, it's, I, I gotta say, I think that fiction writers don't make things up as often as they do, as often as they steal things from real life, you know, that these, these characters who are out there. So it's very good for fiction writing. It's not so good for Broadway. Okay. It's not so good if you want to be going to plays and stuff like that. But, um, but I'm, I'm extremely happy. And yeah, I love New York. I come back for the book. I come back to see my editor. I come back from time to time. But you know, the truth is I'm a hit. Okay, you oh, know. Boo, boo, boo to you. Boo, boo, boo to you. Boo, boo. Tell me about your husband. He's a writer. Did he help? Did he help in this at all? He was amazing. I couldn't have done it without him. Uh, he was there every step of the way. And um, I, ha I love research so much and he loves it less. So I would research something I found fascinating about the various products they used to clean clothes back then or some complicated way to fix a car. And he'd look at it and say, get rid of this. So he was there. And in addition to that, whenever I was really stuck on the dialogue, especially the dialogue for the main character, we would act out the parts. It did, it, this sounds funny. Wait, 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 wait. You and your husband would, in, at the kitchen table, would act yeah. out moonshining? Yeah, yeah, we would. So he'd, he'd play the Duke, which is Sally's father or whoever, Sally's boyfriend. And he'd read those lines and, he, and he'd say, okay, now just react. Just react. And, and so we would act out these parts. And I got to tell you, I learned some of that from when um, The Glass Castle was made into a movie, watching these incredible actors tap into these characters who are my family, crazy family members who they'd never met. And they would go off screen. I mean, it was just so fascinating to me how these people, these actors, would get inside the head of people they'd never met. And it was very informative for the, the whole process of fiction writing. Um, you know, Woody Allen, who played, I mean, Woody, Woody Harrelson, my goodness, Woody Harrelson, who played my father. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, I know, real slip there, huh? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Woody Harrelson, oh, God, you're losing it. You're losing it. Too much Virginia. I a long time ago, honey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead, go. Woody Harrelson would, um, he, he'd go off script sometimes, and He'd say things that my father had said that I hadn't told him, or and he'd stay in character. Um, and Naomi Watts played my mother, and uh, they would stay in character and would be going out to dinner, and they'd start fighting. And it was just it was so interesting to me how these actors inhabited other people's characters and personalities. And I think that that's kind of what fiction is. Fiction is it's an act of empathy and putting yourself in other people's situations and other people's uh, heads. And I think that I'm more qualified than most people to write about somebody who lived 100 years ago because of the way I was raised. I was raised in southern West Virginia without indoor plumbing. Uh, we, our house was wired for electricity, but we usually didn't pay the bills. So I grew up mostly without electricity. So I understand what it feels like not to have these modern conveniences. And I also understand the miracle of what it's like to finally get something like electricity or flush toilets. It's wonderful. And so that's, that's the world uh, that Sally was living in 100 years ago with this incredible transformation that took place in places like Virginia where they were moving from uh, the, this rural agrarian society into the modern world. And so that's part of the 
um, the background that Sally's experienced in this country that right after World War One was trying to figure out who it was. Sally's also trying to figure out who she is with this rich father, this powerful father who doesn't always follow the rules in a society that doesn't always follow the rules because everybody ignored prohibition. Everybody just sort of, you know, they made they made whiskey or they brought it in from the Bahamas or whatever. And everybody was breaking the law and people had to figure out what is right and what is wrong. And that's that's Sally's journey, figuring out what is right and what is wrong. OK, I got to figure out what's a day in your life like with tractors and computers <laughs> and animals and goats or whatever the hell else you got there. What's what's your what's your life like? Um, I feed the critters first thing in the morning. I go out oh. and feed the chickens. Yes, I do. I take oh my, my God. hands okay. out and feed the okay. chickens. Okay, all right, okay. Your story is really... Oh, please, leave me alone. Your story has touched my heart. I'm going to actually read this book. Now, tell me, you are going to be in New York selling it somewhere. You're going to be speaking about it. Where? When? Barnes & Noble downtown. Where the, It's going to be the... Where, this is going to be the first um, event in the whole event is the Barnes and Noble. And um, then I'm going to be going across the country on the East Coast. And then uh, I'm going to be doing a six week tour. And we're going to be flogging it all over the place. And what are you going to do with the money you get? I buy more chickens. Oh, get off. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I don't even want to eat your chickens. I don't want to. I want to see you and hug you and love you. That's all I want oh, okay. to do. You might not want to eat my chickens. My eggs are good. The eggs are good, though. I got to tell you. I are they cheaper good than eggs. they are in New York? Oh, they're free. <laughs> <laughs> they're cheaper. Get off the phone. And I love you. I love you. I love you, Cindy. <laughs> Thank you, baby. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. Bye. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I'm going to tell you something that not everyone is going to like, but then not everybody likes everything I like. I am going to talk about Rolls-Royce, which is sending out repetitive stories about being on a roll. I want to tell you a personal experience of owning a Rolls-Royce. This is back when family silverware came largely from the automat in my life, and it's when I reported my day one excitement of being able to own my own Rolls-Royce. That was day one. By day 10, in the Coney Island Times, which was all I could scratch up to write in back then, I reported what it was like to own a Rolls-Royce. It quick laid down dead. It gave a wheeze, a cough, and it went straight to Rolls-Royce heaven. This was the second greatest day it stopped. It originally stopped on a six-lane highway with Fords, Chevys, Volkswagens zooming by yelling at me, get a horse. Its salesman was so British that next to him King Charles sounded Southern, and he said, merely a minor adjustment, madam. Yeah. One month's minor adjustment later, my husband clambered back in. The ignition was off, nobody was around, and the rear windows moved up and down by themselves. Both directional signals worked simultaneously and the rear's right-side makeup mirror light lit up the mahogany desk on the left side. I mean, it's so classy. In the back seat, you had a mahogany desk. Everything looks great. Just didn't work. Also, the air conditioning in January blasted from the heating unit. The salesman, minor adjustment, madam. One month's minor adjustment later, my husband clambered back in. The ignition was off, and other things were suddenly not off. They were working. The air conditioning blasted, as I said, from the heating unit. 
and on a little country road straightaway, late at night, we had another problem. No other car was around. No Rolls, no Chevy, no nothing. And still, our lights did not work. We couldn't see where we were going. And I said to the salesman, when I took it back for the 74th time, if the pound hadn't devalued, we wouldn't even be doing business with the likes of you. High noon on 57th and Madison, this white dream car, license plate JA4, had a crowd around it. The hood was up. Smoke billowed from the engine. I got onto the first thing moving, a bus going downtown. <laughs> My appointment was uptown. Next, a brake lining problem and reheating situation. Also, the radio stopped. The rear license plate holder fell off. The trunk locked, and the car stopped dead in traffic. If anybody doesn't believe in me, let them go check out those days, and you will see my car, my Rolls-Royce, stopped dead in traffic. It is not so chic that even when it couldn't move me, the owners, it surged with pride as I leaned against it to summon a cab. They say the only thing that makes noise in a rolls is the clock. Yeah, that's if you don't count the owner crying. We hadn't realized it had been one of the earliest silver shadow designs, maybe even a store model. Whatever the hell it was, to tell you the truth, the thrill of owning unless you get an asthmatic rolls like we did, dies hard. I am never, ever going to get another Rolls Royce. And you can tell that to anyone you listen to. And I am now going to tell you, I am now going to take a bus and go downtown and have lunch. Thank you for listening. I love you. I will be on WABC again next week, if they still let me, from 1 to 2. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.